Welcome to another episode of Energy Talks. I'm journalist Markham Hislop. This podcast is all about interesting conversations with energy and climate experts from around the world. And don't forget to follow us on social media, on Twitter, at E-N-E-R-G-I Media, and my personal handle, at PoliticalHam, on Facebook, facebook.com slash energymedia. Energy.media is our website, where you'll find Markham and Energy columns, news stories and op-eds, and the Energy Student Resources Portal, a wiki-style collection of our work that's free for high school teachers and university professors to use in their classrooms. Now sit back, relax, and enjoy the episode. The Canadian Climate Institute has launched the first publications in its Mobilizing Private Capital to Support Canada's Clean Growth Research Series. And I'm going to talk to Marissa Beck, who is the Clean Growth Director for the Institute. So welcome to the interview, Marissa. Thank you, Mark. I'm happy to be here. Now, I want to kind of set the context here, because the context before August was one thing. Then in August, the U.S. introduced the Inflation Reduction Act, $369 billion uh, for clean energy programs. Uh, but that's hardly the that's hardly the, the, the beginning and the end uh, mm-hmm. of this of policy for the U.S., because there's $280 billion for the uh, uh, Chips and Science Act, which is tied in closely to clean energy. There are pots of money to be lent out or, you know, investment credits and other programs. I mean, I've seen one estimate that the total amount committed between now and 2030 could be as high as a trillion dollars. And so mobilizing capital to undertake the, to, to, to build clean energy industry in Canada has got to be job number one. And back in October, uh, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland went to Edmonton and talked, gave a speech and talked about how Canada was going to have, in her words, quote, real muscular industrial policy, end quote. Then that same month, in fact, it was the next week, I went to Vancouver and attended a press conference with Resources Minister Jonathan Wilkinson, and I asked him about what does industrial policy mean to you? And he came back and he said it has three parts, carbon pricing, regulations, and pools of public capital. I have said in other other, uh, podcasts and, and columns and so on that that's a very, very restricted view of industrial policy. And there is a November speech by Gina Riamondo, the U.S. Commerce Secretary, that for Energy Talks listeners, if you haven't read this, you can you can uh, if you Google it and just look uh, and include industrial policy speech, it, it is amazing. It is literally the uh, the Biden administration's blueprint for clean energy strategy out to 2030. And it's a remarkable document. It spells it out in detail. It says exactly why and what, and and in many cases how much. And it Canada's approach pales by comparison. Uh, we went from being, you know, we could maybe say we were ahead of the Americans on, you know, climate policy and, and clean energy policy. Well, no more. We are we are now badly lagging. The Americans have lapped us a couple of times in very short order. That's why your work here, Marissa, in my opinion, is worthy of attention. We need to look around the world at other examples. What are other countries doing? How can we adapt some of those policies if they make sense for us? 
and you've provided uh, four case studies and we'll get into that. And I've given a, a little bit of a, a lengthy prologue here uh, to kind of set the context. Maybe well, let's just get you to respond to that. Yeah, sure. I'd be happy to. And I think you are absolutely right that the passing of the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. in August of last year has really changed the playing field, um, both, both for Canada, but certainly around the world as well. Um, and I think what is interesting about that, and you mentioned that in your opening comments as well, that it, the Inflation Reduction Act has really manifested how our ideas of competitiveness in a low carbon world are changing. It used to certainly be the center of conversation to talk about how can Canadian industries be shielded from bad competitiveness effects of the carbon tax? How can uh, we make sure that Canada is not too restrictive in its in its climate policies to not you know risk competitiveness issues with the U.S. and the Inflation Reduction Network certainly kind of put that equation on its head. It is now about how can we keep up. And again, Canada is certainly not the only government in the world that is facing these questions right now. In fact, the EU has uh, just released uh, new measures and new strategies to come up with its own kind of industrial policy piece. Um, so it is certainly an interesting time to think about mobilizing private capital. And we had uh, envisioned and started planning this kind of series of research products prior to the inflation reduction ad. And we had to reshuffle some of our questions and some of our foci for sure. I'll bet you did. And, you know, uh, for very often, and, and my view of this comes from the media, you know, my media colleagues, and also from social media, I have, you know, pretty fair reach on social media, especially in Western Canada. And so I, I'm getting feedback all the time, you know, people in the industry and outside of the industry. And I don't think it's sunk in yet uh, in the general public, how revolutionary the times we are, are the times we're in. This, you know, last month, the um, National Energy Agency releases Technology Perspectives 2023, and it said, Okay, the the U.S. the the COVID nineteen pandemic kicked off an acceleration of the energy transition that then was tremendously accelerated by Russia's invasion of the Ukraine and the and creation of a of a, a an energy crisis, particularly around gas in Europe. Now it's not about now it's about building out the clean energy industries that will basically underpin economic competitiveness over the next over to the next decades for the rest of the rest of the century for sure they called it a new industrial revolution and this is not only in some cases like for the canadian oil and gas industry it is an existential threat we could see in a in not in a decade but in two or three decades that the US, the canadian oil and gas industry centered in alberta becomes non-competitive Non-competitiveness on carbon, non-competitive on price. If the Saudis decide in 2035 that they want that market, they will have that market because it costs them $5 to produce a barrel of oil. But we have other industries as well. So that's the first thing is risk, mitigating risk. But the second thing is taking advantage of opportunities. Mm -hmm. 
everybody else, the Americans, the Europeans are catching up to the Chinese in building industrial clean energy technology, industrial clusters, electric vehicles, batteries, manufacturing wind turbines, manufacturing solar panels, all of the industry, all of the products and that are required to build a clean energy economy now have to be built. And that, that is up in the air. We have competitive advantages here in Canada, um, and we can get more than our share of that, that capital and those jobs and that economic activity, but not, not just by sitting back and waiting for it to happen and come to us. And that seems to me to be what really underlies the case studies that you that are in this series. Yes, I think I would agree with that. The passing of the Inflation Reduction Act has not necessarily created these changes um, that we have seen. I mean, we've seen costs of renewable energies coming down and kind of the cost curves declining uh, in recent years. And as you say, the, the war in Ukraine and, and, and the pandemic have accelerated that even more. But the Inflation Reduction Act, the passing has really I guess, driven home a couple of key messages to the Canadian government. And, and the one is that I find particularly interesting, and as you say, really in turning this into a, uh, a time of great transition, this idea also that good climate policy is good economic policy. That linkage has been cemented by the Inflation Reduction Act um, that is called an Inflation Reduction Act. It is pretty much a clean energy bill, as you say, but, but creating that link of in order to build resilient economies, we need to address climate change and we need to think about low carbon futures and the, the industries that will thrive in a low carbon future. I think that that is a really important linkage that has now been cemented. For the Canadian government, it has certainly increased the urgency to act and we have seen some action. We saw a couple of announcements in the fall economic statement. We're expecting more announcements um, in the budget that will come out in a couple of months. And um, the measures that have been announced there, the Canada Growth Fund and the investment tax credits, we don't know very much about them yet. The details are still being hammered out, but we're seeing action. And there is certainly an urgency to, to take action. At the same time, I think it is important for Canada, given, as you say, um, the maybe the the smaller size of the Canadian economy and this um, uh, this urge now to keep up and find its niche. What is Canada's uh, strength? Where are the competitive advantages in that new global economy that is emerging right now? We would also urge the Canadian government to yes, respond quickly and boldly but think strategically. I think it would um, be of disadvantage now if there were uh, hasty piecemeal approaches put together without kind of a more general, broader arc strategy in place. And we should point out that piecemeal is generally the Canadian way to, you know, that that uh, I, I sat on a uh, panel back in October in Ottawa uh, with uh, Michael Wernick, who is a professor of economics at the University of Ottawa. And, but, but more importantly, uh, between I think it was 2015 and 2019, was the clerk of the Privy Council, which for those who don't know, if you're outside Canada, uh, that's basically the head of the Canadian federal uh, bureaucracy, a very, very powerful uh, policy setting position. And I listened with dismay, dismay, as he described, oh, you know, we've been through these changes before. 
we will muddle through again. And he actually used the word muddle through. And it was the exact opposite of the strategic approach that you and others are advocating. So what we're going to talk about today is, for examples, where public capital has been put to good use to leverage private capital. And this is a theme that comes up over and over and over again in my in, in the interviews. There simply isn't enough public capital in the world to do what's needed. But private capital needs sometimes needs innovations de-risked. Sometimes it needs it just, you know, the competitiveness of an industry will be affected if it has to pay for all of the uh, you know, emissions reduction that's required. There's a, there's a big role for public capital to play, but getting it right is really important to get to leverage it. So let's start with the hydrogen tax credits in the US Inflation Reduction Act. What can you tell us about those? Yeah, sure. Um, maybe before getting to that, I just wanted to give kind of a couple of sentences on why we decided to conduct these international case studies and why we chose the four examples that we chose out of the really large number of, of, of possibilities here. So we conducted four, four case studies and I understand we'll walk through them one by one, so that's great. Because we wanted to see exactly, as you say, a lot of attention is being paid to the US right now. And it is one of our case studies. I'll be talking about it in just a moment. But we were thinking there must be other innovative approaches out there. Other jurisdictions must have come up with interesting ideas. And so we tried to put together a set of four case studies that try to show a variety of approaches and kind of um, summarize or reflect different models of how governance can governments can can go about as exactly as you say, levering, leveraging private private capital. So the first case study that you asked me about is the US um, tax credit, hydrogen tax credit, which of course is part of the Inflation Reduction Act. And what we thought was particularly interesting about, um, about this policy that got us interested in that, first of all, there's a lot of public attention and media attention on this right now. So we thought it would uh, be good to dig in a little deeper. And uh, maybe one of the key takeaways for me from this case study is that really interesting linkage that it is creating between the level of support that is provided and the achievement of certain policy objectives. So of course, there's the emissions reductions. So the um, the tax credit, that tax credit you receive is higher, the cleaner your hydrogen is. But there are also other aspects included in the Inflation Reduction Act, like certain labor conditions, apprenticeship conditions uh, that can help you increase the level of support that you get. Um, there are also conditions around where the project is located. Is it located in a so-called energy communities? Those are communities that have recently been dependent on coal mining or coal-fired power production. So the innovative piece in this policy that we were really interested in exploring is how to integrate um, these kind of objectives and make them integral to how the policy is being designed, which the Inflation Reduction Act does very explicitly and, 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 and beautifully in that sense. So that was one aspect. The other one that we thought was interesting, and we mentioned it in the case study, if you read the full report, especially giving the variation of subsidy levels for different depending on how clean your hydrogen is. There are interesting ideas if you transfer that into the Canadian system, given that Canada already has a carbon price that does provide, goes a certain way to providing the incentive to invest in green hydrogen as opposed to the less, less clean versions of it. So those interactions, again, one of the questions that we were interested in exploring in this case study. 
Right. And in the uh, the fall statement, uh, fall economic statement, um, Finance Minister Christopher Freeland did introduce a hydrogen tax credit. So we don't we don't know uh, yet all the, the ins and outs of that. So we'll we'll wait and see. But I, I do want to say that I've done some some podcasts uh, around the economics of hydrogen. And one of them with Paul Martin, who's a hydrogen engineer, Canadian hydro- hydrogen engineer, um, he was very negative. Uh, mm-hmm. He thinks that there will be very limited roles for hydrogen. It's uneconomic. It's going to be uh, inefficient. It's there are all sorts of you know physics issues with storing and using transporting hydrogen that will be difficult to overcome. But then in October, I spent uh, a day in Vancouver uh, interviewing hydrogen. Uh, companies that that make technology to use hydrogen, you know, like internal combustion engines and fuel cells and so on. And then last week I was in Edmonton and did uh, quite a number of interviews uh, with, you know, with hydrogen related interviewees. So, you know, like the city of Edmonton and their hydrogen buses and a a pilot project with, with two uh, semi-tractors for hauling freight back and forth between Calgary and Edmonton that use fuel cells and, and hydrogen they have a very different view of it because they say, okay, look, I mean, this is, you know, it's not competitive yet. We still don't have the infrastructure. We still don't have the supply, but we see those coming and we can foresee as we scale up this technology, as we manufacture more of it and we get, you know, we bring down the cost of the fuel and we can see that this will not only be competitive, it will be lower cost. And then there will be all of the other advantages for, for instance, the Edmonton hydrogen buses, you know, they can run in the cold uh, in in the winter in Edmonton in a way that the battery electric buses that the city has cannot. So it provides other value, low emission, but value for low emission technology that the competitor competing technologies can't provide. And so even if on a strict, some sort of strict, you know, cost basis, it's not quite as competitive the the uh, the industry and the regulators and the some of the uh, stakeholders like the cities are really excited about this mm-hmm. and so this tax credit uh, seems to me to be a very wise thing uh, at the moment is this a good is the Canadian should the Canadian hydrogen tax credit follow the design of the American hydrogen tax credit I think in, in some ways, and especially in uh, that with that design feature of linking the level of support to the to meeting certain conditions, uh, environmental, but also related to employment and training and so on, that has actually been announced that it's it's supposed to the Canadian uh, tax credit is supposed to follow a similar model, and there are consultations right now going on about setting these thresholds and getting that set up. So I think. I think that is the intention right now. Um, in terms of, uh, is it a good idea to follow? Again, I would come back to this idea of how does it interact with the carbon price already? Um, the the inter- These international case studies, I think they all provide important lessons that Canada can adopt, and we do spell them out at the end of each case study. It must be clear that none of these policies could just be kind of copied over um, because the circumstances in Canada are very different. We're actually advocating for a, a made in Canada approach that is very specific to, to the circumstances here. And one big difference between the US and Canada, of course, is the existence of a carbon price in Canada. And that carbon price m- 
with increasing levels over its kind of trajectory over the next years, will do a larger and larger lift in directing investment in clean alternatives already. And if the Canadian government now put, um, you know, followed the call to match the IRA, depending on how that is interpreted, it might end up oversubsidizing um, over subsidizing certain projects because not taking into account the effects that the carbon or the incentives that the carbon price is already um, creating. And of course, over subsidization, while we are looking at a time of great change and we have great ambitious targets that we need to meet, over subsidization is, of course, also something that the government wants to avoid uh, because it that these public funds are sparse and there are great opportunity costs to spending them on projects that might not actually require and that might not bring the payoffs for the Canadian economy that we would hope for. So the Canadian government should act selectively, strategically and with prudence as well. Right. And we'll get in, in our second example, we'll talk about opportunity costs of capital, uh, public capital. Uh, but I, I want to make one point before we, we leave the hydrogen tax credits. And, and you brought up the other conditions that the Inflation Reduction Act has applied. And this doesn't get a lot of attention, but I know and I, I want to just, uh, you know, I have a conflict of interest here, so I'll disclose this. The Alberta Federation of Labor has been long been a client of ours. They hire us to do, you know, to for writing assignments and and do presentations on the energy transition. In the course of that, I've heard them, you know, my client talking about the importance of attaching things like labor and training uh, requirements uh, to those, those subsidies. And I think that I, uh, as I understand it, unions and, and labor organizations across Canada have been lobbying the federal government for exactly to include exactly those conditions. And in the economic fall statement, uh, Freeland is suge suggested that would be the case. So we'll, we'll, it looks like we'll see Canada following the, the American example on this, uh, yes. which I think is a, is a good thing. Because uh, let's talk about the second case study, which is the in the Norway's long ship carbon capture and storage project in the North Sea. And uh, what can you tell us about this? Sure. Yeah. So we were interested in this project um, because the Norwegian government actually takes a very different approach than the U.S. government um, does. So if we think about the Inflation Reduction Act tax credits as kind of a blanket support to, to an entire industry, what the Norwegian government has done with the Longship CCS project is to invest large amounts of resources, financial and non-financial, in one large, immense strategic project. So that CCS project in the Norwegian North Sea is supposed to serve Europe. Um, and uh, it is seen as building on existing skills and experiences and resources in Norway. So it was a strategically chosen project. And the government has not only provided huge amounts of funding to get that project started and and there's a lot of large infrastructure investment involved that the private market would not deliver. So there was a role for government here to step in and get that project going. Um, but what they've also done at the same time is worked on regulations and permitting processes to also address some of the non-financial challenges that a project uh, using an innovative or new technology at that scale would face. So we were interested here in exploring that kind of very 
targeted yet holistic approach that the Norwegian government has taken here to get that project off the ground. What is interesting, while phase one of the project is very much government funded, I think if I remember correctly, two thirds of the initial project costs were taken on by government. In phase two, the project is expected to become profitable and the private companies that are involved in it are, are expected to take over. So um, very interesting setup. There's two things I want to talk to you about here. And one is the the funding, uh, yeah. because the, the Pathways Alliance that the oil sands companies formed uh, point to long ship all the time for uh, government support. But secondly, the lack of strategy. Now, the government uh, bought, brought in investment tax credit for uh, carbon capture utilization and storage last fall, and it provided a lot of support of 50 percent, if I'm if I'm not mistaken. And there is no strategy attached to it. In fact, I've written, I wrote a column, and I and I said, uh, basically, uh, now back up a little bit. The Pathways Alliance project is there's 22 oil sands projects in northeastern Alberta. They're going to build a carbon pipeline. They're going to put the equipment on 22 of these projects, you know, to capture the carbon, the CO2. Then they're going to pipe it into the big pipe, take it down. Uh, a couple hundred kilometers, I think it is, roughly, to uh, northeastern Alberta near uh, Cold Lake, and they're going to bury it in the ground. There's no strategy there at all. This project is 100% entirely to benefit the oil sands oil companies. There might be a few comp might be a few producers or you know, industries along the the route uh, that can tie into it, and they you know, but it'll be very few, and. Uh, and so my argument was that it should have been routed down, it should have been routed west and terminated around Fort Saskatchewan, where there already is a big industrial cluster of petrochemical companies and other emerging industries that could make use of that CO2. And we already know that, you know, like the Chinese are using captured CO2 in advanced material manufacturing. At, at Calgary has already got a research center in that and three companies there that are that are busy doing it. And the comp the, the, the government, you know, this is a $75 billion project of which government they were hoping, you know, would spend 50 billion, not two thirds of three and a half billion dollars, 50 billion just for government and no strategy whatsoever. And so I I still maintain that the investment tax credit for CCUS that the oil sand was a strategic failure on the part of the federal government. That was not done. They were in a panic to get it out so that they could hopefully get started and then meet their emissions targets. And they completely fudged the strategic part of this. Mm -hmm. Would you agree? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm... Um... I'm not sure I can respond <laughs> respond to that in great detail, but coming back to the um, to the Norwegian case study, it is certainly intended for uh, capturing uh, heavy industry emissions, and as I said, kind of serving the European market. Um, we are though aware, and we're addressing that in the case study as well. That CCS, of course, has can have controversial impacts also in terms of carbon lock-in and if it serves the oil and gas sector. Um, so that that aspect is definitely uh, ad addressed in the case study as well. Um, we chose it as an example also mostly to look at the how, right? That to look at the government 
model that the Norwegian government has, sorry, that support model that the Norwegian government has developed. And as you say, that really strategic focus um, and, and then putting a lot of money behind something that is considered of strategic value. So that was really kind of the, the really interesting part that we thought makes this case study um, impactful and, and helpful for Canada. Okay, I'm, I'm going to apologize in advance uh, to your communications folks, uh, who I know are going to send me an email. I get this occasionally from from comms folks for the organ, you know, that for the organizations to which my interviewees belong, because you know I'll I'll out outwardly or you know very vocally criticize the government for doing something during the course of an interview, and and then you know the the comms folks panic because that reflects badly on the you know, on the organization or something, you know, I guess that's the argument. So, uh, Catherine at climate Institute, I apologize. <laughs> I, I, I put Marissa in an awkward position and, and, uh, I'll just have to take the consequences, but I think it's a fair criticism. And, and, and in the context of, of what the Norwegian government is doing with longship, they took a strategic approach in CCUS and the oil sands, the government did not take a strategic approach I think that's a major policy failure. All right, let's get on to the third case study. United Kingdom's Contracts for Difference Policy for Renewable Electricity Generation. What can you tell us about this? Sure. So this policy is really interesting, and we chose it uh, as one of our case studies because it makes a really smart use of market mechanisms. So it provides... Uh, support, financial support to renewable, large-scale renewable energy projects, but it does it in a way that is very efficient and not creating a large burden on the public purse. Um, so the concept of contracts for differences uh, has been has been kind of in the news and discussed in Canada, mostly in the context of carbon price, carbon contracts for differences. So that is a financial tool to uh, reduce uncertainty around future carbon prices, but it's in fact a more generic concept. So the UK uses contracts for differences to reduce uncertainty around future wholesale electricity prices. And uh, so it encourages renewable energy producers because it provides certainty around the price at which they can sell their, their electricity in the market. And the UK policy um, includes auctioning off these kinds of contracts. So renewable energy generators would make their bid and those who are able to provide at the lowest cost receive one of those contracts. They receive certainty around their offtake prices over 15 years. Um, and if electricity prices behave, <laughs> um, the, the UK government doesn't actually have to spend a lot of public money in, in, in compensating for, for the price difference. So it's a very elegant tool. It has been in operation for almost 10 years. I believe 2014 it was implemented. So we have quite a good of track record. So it was interesting for us in that sense, thinking about efficiency, thinking about the scarcity of public funds and how to best use the public dollars. That seemed to us like a model that could have some important insights for Canada in terms of how to use market powers to um, to make these support mechanisms more efficient. And we have in, actually seen in the UK the price uh, at which wholesaler or renewable energy producers are pitching their project has come down. So the price um, uh, at which um, the the sorry, the public funding per kilowatt hour that has been provided has come down over the existence of the of the 
um, of the program. So it has been successful in that sense. What is also interesting, what was interesting for us is that these contracts are handled by a private corporation uh, owned by the government, but operating at arm's length of the government. We thought that is an interesting parallel maybe to the Canada Growth Fund that has been suggested also in the or announced in the fall economic statement that is also supposed to operate as an, uh, an um, institution at arm's length of government. So that was also an interesting aspect for us uh, looking at the UK case study. Now it should be pointed out that the uh, Alberta government brought in just this kind of uh, program back in 2018. And I interviewed Professor Blake Schaefer from the University of Calgary about it, I think it was 2021. And the program had actually earned the government $26 million over that time. So not only did it lock in certainty for the industry, but when well done, uh, it made the government a little bit of money. You know, That's, I mean, there, there's a, there's the coffee fund in the legislature for uh, a year or two. The UK program is set up as a two-way contract as well. So what that means is if the wholesale electricity price is below the strike price that is included in the contract, money would flow from government to producers. If it is above, the producers would pay the difference back to the government. Right. So that makes perfect sense. So it this program or this policy looks like it might be more applicable at the provincial level for provinces that like Alberta that want to bring in renewable electricity uh, generation. And and that and, and it could be like Saskatchewan, for example, uh, you know, that wants to get off coal and natural gas. But also we're seeing provinces like Quebec, you know, which is a, a hydro powerhouse is now adding wind. And it probably won't see much solar, but but certainly uh, wind uh, to its uh, portfolio. And uh, I don't know if this policy would be applicable there. But anyway, uh, the, at the provincial level, this might work. Uh, it's true. I, I, I just want to say one sentence, though. It has also been suggested in for the Canada Growth Fund, what we know already, the technical background and that has been published, contracts for differences, both carbon and other Prices, commodities, um, has been included as one of the five, I believe, five uh, finance, finance, finance instruments that the Canada Growth Fund is intended to use. So we might see something like that actually coming to life in Canada, initiated by the Canada Growth Fund. Interesting. So in Canada, we're, we could see it on on price in the market, or we could see it on the carbon price uh, in uh, to to give. Uh, well, I mean, there, you know, the, the the argument always is that the a future government could change the carbon price and cut it back, or you know, accelerate it, whatever. And so this gives, uh, and that that affects the the ability of private capital to make a decision because the uncertainty discourages the investment. So, well, let's talk about Australia's green bank. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, sure. So Australia's Green Bank, it's the Clean Energy Finance Corporation, and it was set up, I think, almost a decade ago as well. So again, we have a bit of a track record. That case study was particularly interesting for us because it there are some important similarities between what we know about the CEFC in Australia and, and between what we know so far about the Canada Growth Fund. So it seemed like a good uh, interesting uh, parallel example here that Canada might draw some key lessons from. So the Australian CFC is specializing in supporting, again, clean energy project, energy efficiency projects, and specifically looking at projects that are not able to raise capital in the private markets, um, but 
the bank would step in and fill that gap and leverage the private capital. So it's the terminology that is used as crowding in private money. So instead of the bank um, giving out grants or funding the entire project, it is really a co-financing co model with the private sector where the Australian CFC would just step in and kind of close that gap that is necessary, share the risks, reduce the uncertainties that keep private investors from putting their capital into the project and thereby make the project possible. Now, what is interesting specifically about how the CFC works, it has been very successful in crowding in private capital. So every public dollar that was invested in these project has brought a return of over, I think it's $2.41. So you see that that the ratio is is very much in favor. So the CFC is very good at picking projects that become profitable at some point and that are attractive to the private market, which again has an efficiency component here. We want to spend public dollars wisely. We want to spend public dollars in projects that ultimately become profitable and contribute to the country's prosperity. And we also want to make sure that we're not funding projects that would go go ahead anyway, right? We wanna make sure that those are projects that are truly additional. So to not just create windfall projects for, for private industries. And it seems like the Australian track record has been good with that. There uh, are frequent criticisms leveled at the Canada Growth Fund and, and similar uh, Canadian approaches in that the federal government, and, and this is, I don't think this afflicts this particular government, though it does, uh, or exclusively, other other Canadian governments have, have faced the same problem. They set up, they make the announcement, they set up the application process, and then the government waits for people, you know, companies to uh, fill in the applications and, and land them on. There's no strategy. There's no strategic approach. The same thing that we run into with uh, with carbon capture, uh, CCUS on, on the oil sands, uh, that criticism can also be levied against the, the the you know the Canadian Growth Fund, and I'm wondering if Australia's Green Bank took a strategic approach. Yeah, interesting. I think um, I think what they what we identify as one of the strengths of these approaches is certainly the way that they have built strategic partnerships uh, in the private sector in the kind of um, commercial banking industry as well. So they are operate closely with the private financial market institutions. And I think for one reason, certainly to attract projects and to um, leverage also the expertise that the private sector has. Um, so um, I think that piece might be might be a good example for Canada. And if I remember correctly, the technical background that talks about developing strategic partnerships as well for the Canada Growth Fund, which also helps keeping the institution itself nice and lean and kind of reducing administrative costs and running the institution themselves if, if those partnerships can really help and support um, support the operations and um yeah i want to i want to use a, the edmonton regional hydrogen hub as an example of a strategic approach because mm -hmm. this was not a government initiative the government did not was not the impetus behind the formation of this but it has uh it has a uh, private industry members 
It has uh, think tanks uh, and organize like the transition accelerator is part of the the management. Uh, it has governments at the table, so the federal government, provincial government, municipal governments within the within the area. It has First Nations, and all of these organizations came together, put together a strategic plan, assembled, identified projects began to work on it strategically, bring the resources to the table, bring together the private industry partners that needed to be there, you know, for, like I, I mentioned earlier, this uh, uh, the pilot project they're going to launch next, maybe I think it's in April, with two hydrogen-powered semi-trucks hauling freight back and forth between Calgary and, and Edmonton so they can test costs and reliability and that sort of thing. And then they've got supply projects coming up. They've got 25 projects in the in the pipeline. That's the, that is a strategic approach. And the federal government has played a big role. They provided funding. They sit at the table all the time with these other partners. And, and it works really well. It's a, it's, a, it's a neat little model for either, either you know, uh, other hydrogen hubs, or it could be uh, renewable energy hubs. It could be uh, renew, uh, clean energy technology manufacturing hubs. I mean, you can apply this kind of st strategy leading to then to policy all over the place. And it looks like Australia's kind of taken the same approach. And it sounds like Canada with the Clean Energy Fund and hopefully with these other funds, uh, pools of capital that they're going to make available, they will take the same approach. I worry that they don't. I worry, I, I worry that they won't. But uh, here's at least one example they're involved with that they could learn from. And if they do that, I think then they would be on a good track. Yeah, and I think the kind of strategic thinking, even if you think in the landscape or in the context of public funding programs and funding pools, I think there needs to be coordination as well. So how does the Canada Growth Fund fit strategically into the various programs and pools that already exist across the federal government and then provincial as well? Again, you want to make sure that these interactions between the different programs don't lead to windfall profits or redundancies. You want to make sure that there's efficiency and also a streamlined process that makes it easy for project developers, for proponents to, to find the program and the funding pool that is applicable to them and that there are clear rules around which ones can be combined and stacked on top of each other and which ones cannot. So I think these strategic considerations are are core and very crucial to, to making this work. And just coming back, I think there is there is certainly a trade-off right now between acting fast and responding urgently to um, kind of the global developments and the um, yeah global changes that we've seen with the Inflation Reduction Act and Europe's response and so on. And, and this idea that some of these strategic developments or the partnerships that you just described also do take time to develop. So I think there is a trade-off to make here. Well, let's wrap up our conversation by summarizing. I'll, I'll first of all summarize the, the four case studies. So we have the hydrogen tax credits in the U.S. Inflation Reduction Act. The Canadian government has already brought in hydrogen tax credits. Um, we have the uh, longship carbon capture and storage in uh, in Norway at the, with the in, in the North Sea, and the government has brought in CCUS tax credits, tax in, uh, in, tax incentive uh, tax investment tax credits, sorry, something. We'll get it right one of these days. Uh, anyway, and I criticize the government for not doing it strategically. 
So this may be an example where they didn't learn the lesson from the from the case study. The third one is the United Kingdom's contract for difference policy for renewable electricity generation. That looks like um, it'll, it'll take that approach on carbon price. We'll see if provincial governments follow up and do more of it as Alberta did on the electricity price. And then we have Australia's Green Bank, which is analogous to the Canada Growth Fund some details to still to be determined. And uh, is it fair to say, in, in your opinion, after reviewing where we're at in Canada and then these case studies, that we're on the right track? I think generally, yes. I think it's great that the government has taken action and is intending to take more action. And I do um, believe that these instruments are are good starting points. I do want to iterate, though, that I think they're they do not replace a strategic, a more strategic um, approach to Canada's clean growth trajectory. I think um, there needs to be more strategic and long-term thinking. And one question for sure that even in our research right now, we've mostly focused on the how. We're looking at the instruments. We're looking at a different policy approaches. This whole question around where, what are the competitive advantages? What are the sectors, technologies, uh, companies uh, that, that should uh, mostly benefit and um, have these strategic value for, for Canada? Canada's economic future. So I think there needs to be more thinking done around that. And certainly if you read the NZAPS, um, the National Advisory Board's um, annual report that was just released a couple of weeks ago, they strongly urge as well to develop kind of sectoral, regional, uh, clean growth strategies again, using a very inter inclusive and participatory approach together with industry and First Nations and and so on to come up with that strategic, uh, um, how do you want to describe it? Uh, the roof or something that should hold it all together. Um, right. it's certainly not, I would not expect that whatever we hear in the budget coming out in April will be the last on this question. There is no, there's no silver bullet here. This will be an ongoing process. And even the instruments that have been in, uh, announced so far, there needs to be ongoing learning. It's, probably not going to be right right from the start we need to monitor we need to measure we need to adapt and and make sure that that canada is on track to achieve both its emission emissions targets but then also wider it's kind of setting itself up for for a low carbon uh, future well i have to say um i have been following the uh, you know, U.S. clean energy policy for a while now. And I was, you know, and, and that includes the uh, negotiations that took place within the within Congress and the Biden administration around the Inflation Reduction Act. And it was messy and chaotic and looked for, you know, at least twice that it was going to all going to collapse and there'd be, you know, it'd be an opportunity missed. And they pulled out, out of the uh, fire as the Americans are, are, are want to do. Right. They pull it out at the last minute and and do good things. Um, I haven't followed with as much detail in as much detail the Norway, UK and Australia examples. 
But I kind of suspect, given, given their history, that probably messy and chaotic, uh, you know, negotiations and discussions and process was followed before they came to these policies as well. And so maybe in that case, we should uh, not be disheartened with, uh, you know, the Canadian where we at in in Canadian in Canada. But it, it's uh, it seems this we should be optimistic based on our on what we're seeing here and you know the our national government is is doing some good things and, and a lot of it in conjunction with industry and with provincial governments and other stakeholders must be said so uh marissa thank you very much for this this has been very insightful and when you get the other case studies done we'll have you back thank you so much yeah we'll have a number of further reports on the topic coming out over the next week so i'll be happy to uh, to come back and talk more this has been well, great We'll look forward to it. Thank you.